0: Okay, this morning's scripture passage comes from Genesis 25. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within within her, and she said, "Why is this happening to me?" So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, "Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Uh, That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied,
1: First, sell
0: me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left.
1: So Esau despised his birthright. morning we are talking about Jacob, as well as his twin brother
2: Esau, to some extent. It's difficult not to talk about twins together. Uh, once you mention one, you kind of end up mentioning the other one. I know that we've experienced that practically. I was talking to Lydia last night about our twins. I was like, I can't think of a time that I've spoken just about either Witness or Wilder and not mentioned the other one in almost the same breath, uh, because they come together, especially when you're talking about their birth story, right? And this is Jacob and Esau's birth story. This morning. It just kind of happens. But anyway, this is actually the first of uh, two Sundays that we will have on Jacob. Well, it's just the beginning for him. Uh, for the last several weeks, we have been on a journey through the book of Genesis, the book of origins, uh, looking at some key figures and the grand redemptive story of our faith. we talked about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Noah, uh, Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Isaac, and now today, we're talking about Jacob. And accounts like this one. Uh, sort of origin stories for the patriarchs of Israel were incredibly meaningful because they laid the foundations for how Israel would understand themselves and their relationships with God and with their neighbors, some of whom were also direct descendants of Abraham. So these narratives of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are interwoven with the impact of their own faith and failures, and they give us some sense of just how complicated a of times decisions that either Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or his sons uh, make along the way do kind of seem to bear out later in the text um, throughout the Old Testament with uh, their relationship with their neighbors. And to some extent, we see echoes of that even still today. You know, there's lots of conflict uh, in the Middle East and especially in Israel right now. I unfortunately have no great insight into current events, uh, and so all I can say is we ought to pray, right? Uh, Pray for the people of Israel, pray for the people of Gaza, as we mentioned earlier, pray for all civilians involved. Uh, but this is not a sermon on current events. Uh, this is once again an exploration for us of these key figures in Genesis, reflecting on how their life experiences recorded for us in Scripture can provide for us wisdom and guidance as we seek to live faithfully in our world. So I'd like to suggest uh, three lessons. That I think we can observe from our text this morning, and I think they're easy enough. But I didn't make any slides for us this morning, so we'll just follow along in uh, in the text here. The first lesson that I think that we can glean from our text is to trust that God answers prayer. So Jacob and Esau's narrative it actually begins with the prayers of Isaac and Rebekah. Really quite interesting how
1: infrequently. Genesis mentions any of
2: the patriarchs actually praying. They seem to have all sorts of visions, encounters with God, uh, but it doesn't often mention them actually praying and listening. More often than not, they seem to have these encounters and then have kind of stumble forward and, and blunder forward in attempts at faithfulness in response to those encounters. As I noted last week, uh, Abraham and Isaac have some similar beats in their own narrative and their life story. Both even encounter Abimelech, the same person, and both pull off an elaborate proof to try and hide their wives' identity to prevent themselves being killed uh, because of how beautiful their wives are. And in both cases, God blesses them and reiterates his promise it somehow works. Um, and also, both Abraham and Isaac were married to women who struggled with infertility. What we saw last week, they responded in quite different ways. Abraham schemed, and they had this whole weird, complicated situation with, with Hagar that did not turn out very well. Isaac prayed you see that his wife, Rebecca uh, not only conceived but conceived twins. Um, I suggested last week that could be one practical takeaway for us is that prayer works in our moments of greatest anxiety there are moments where life seems uncertain, uh, and we're trying to walk forward and faithfulness to promise, that prayer is definitely a better alternative to scheming and trying to figure out how to do things all on our own. I can't tell you how many times that uh, I have mentioned a difficult decision to my wife, and uh, she'll look at me dead in the eye and say, did you pray about it? And I think, did you pray about it? And I'm a pastor. Of course I prayed about it, right? And I stop and think about it, and I think, wait a minute. I was really just kind of thinking about it in God's presence, kind of hoping that He'd hear because I'm I'm a pastor, right? So He's got to be listening to me all the time, right? Uh, whatever I'm thinking. Uh, but I realized that I don't know that I ever really did actually ask or listen
1: in prayer in response. But there is real power in prayer for God to act, to give insight, and usually usually to change us in the process. See that. For
2: Isaac, when he prays, his wife conceives. You see, for Rebecca, she prays and asks, What on earth is going on inside of me? She at least receives some insight as to what's going on, right? It may not be the most comfortable news for her to receive, but she receives insight. Um, When we pray, God does answer us in some profound way. But there is also this very real and visceral urge for us to do anything other than pray. You all experience this? Am I the only one? Sometimes it seems like every other thought occurs to me other than to sit down to pray. And I think it goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis um, 1 through 3, you know, where, where Adam and Eve are tempted to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil rather than to simply trust God to show them the way. Jacob likewise will often scheme, just like his dad and his grandfather before him. We actually only have one scene where it explicitly says that he prays. We'll talk about this more next week. It's directly before he encounters Esau again. Uh, Later he's going to have the event where he tricks his father Isaac into giving him the blessing, not just the birthright. Uh, And it causes this rift that's so great he feels like he needs to run for his life. So He runs for several years. And finally he's getting ready to come back and he knows he's going to encounter Esau and he's afraid of what's going to
1: happen. Finally, in his mercy, God worked with all three,
2: Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. All of them struggled in their own ways, and all three also had moments of great faith. I'm comforted by the knowledge in all of this that God's plans aren't derailed by our failures. And I'm challenged by the knowledge that simple faith and trust can save us. As followers of Jesus, we don't need to strive and blunder our way through life, hoping that somehow we'll figure it out.
1: We have this unlimited access to
2: God, our good Father, who wants to meet us where we are and to
1: show us his love for us. So okay. we follow as faithfully as we can in prayer. We trust God for the rest. That's our first lesson. Pray. Whenever you get a chance.
2: Second lesson. It's for us to seek to understand God's narrative for our lives, God's narrative above and beyond whatever narratives we create for ourselves and what others may speak over us. You may have noticed that names in Hebrew tend to have some pretty profound meanings. We have encountered Abraham, the father of many nations; uh, Isaac, laughter; Ishmael, God hears. Uh, it's funny to me in, in this uh, account because. When it comes time for Isaac and Rebecca to name their kids, they seem to not go with super profound meanings, but instead just blunt observation of the facts. Uh, Esau comes out, and he's a pretty hairy kid. Going to name you Harry. <laughs> uh, I didn't think about that beforehand. Harry's an actual name, but Harry as in being Harry, right? Uh, but, uh, and Isaac, or not Isaac, uh, whenever he sees, when they see Jacob come out, grasping at the heel of Esau, so they name him. Jacob, which means grasps the heel. They just name them whatever they see happening. But that naming does end up being significant. Esau seems to end up favoring very manly stuff like the hairy guy that he is. And Jacob seems very cunning uh, and to be the one who um, tries to do whatever he can in order to get what he needs out of a situation. It calls to mind that question of nature versus nurture, right? Which comes first or which uh, shapes us in the people that we are? Are we born this way? Or are we shaped by our circumstances? I'm speaking just anecdotally here, uh, but Lydia and I have seen this with our own twins. Unlike Isaac and Rebecca, we didn't go by uh, you know, just blunt observation when they were born. We thought carefully and prayed about what we ought to name uh, these twins whenever they were born. And, and we came up with actually an interesting... Um, difficulty in process because we had these names picked out and we kind of knew we wanted whichever one was born first to be Witness, but how do you know which one's going to be first? And so as we're trying to like think about each of these, uh, our son's individuals, it was really difficult for us to envision what they were going to be like and what their lives were going to be like. Very different from uh, the process of Beacon and Annabel. But we found that these names seemed to fit pretty well uh, with them. Witness tends to be more chatty than Wilder. He likes to report on everything that he sees happening. Um, and he loves to tell on his siblings whenever they've done anything wrong. Uh, Wilder is incredibly fearless. He's very active. We not so jokingly say that he is uh, violently affectionate. <laughs> he, he really loves you with everything that he has. He's very wild in that respect. Reflecting on that, I would suggest that there's an interplay. Right between both nature and nurture going on here. We often interact with others based on surface-level observations that we see, and we respond in that way. But then we also, in response to that, speak over them certain narratives and qualities in their life uh, and reinforce those narratives in people's lives. So there's this both observing nature and also helping to shape and create an environment that enforces certain patterns. Jacob will spend much of his life living out the script of the heel grasper, the deceiver, the trickster, the guy who does whatever he needs to do to get what he needs. And next Sunday, God willing, we'll be back here to talk about that moment in his life where everything changes for him. Uh, He even gets a chance to change his name. Uh, His name is changed for him. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves yet. For now, I think it'll suffice for us to note that the narratives that we believe profoundly shape our lives. Question for reflection is: What are the names that we have taken on for ourselves that were given to us, or been spoken over our lives? The narrative patterns that have been spoken for us. What have other people spoken uh, over us? Most importantly, what does God say about you? What is God speaking into our lives? Our good Father has called us his beloved children. We live as though that's true, and as though that's the most important quality of our lives. Remember, I've taught about uh, identity with high school students in particular. I remember uh, Brethren Academy one year when I was uh, leading that it's for high school students who are exploring a call to ministry. I introduced myself as, hi, I'm Corey, and I'm a child of God. I don't ever usually introduce myself that way. But I think it's an important thing for us to hammer that home for ourselves, uh, even as we speak over ourselves and to others. That That's our most central identity that we are as children. All that to say, we should take care what we speak over others, we speak over ourselves and what we receive from others, the messages that we take to heart. The third lesson that I think we can glean here is to recognize the value of our inheritance in Christ. Speaking of being mindful of what we value and the messages we receive, I do want to take just a moment to comment on the beginnings of this conflict with Jacob and Esau. So it all happens, right, with this uh, incident of Esau being really hungry after a long day of hunting. Comes home and see Jacob making this stew that looks really tasty on some of that red stuff. As they have grown up, they've begun to live out their respective scripts. Right? Esau is this hairy, manly hunter, and he's just hungry all the time. Uh, versus his younger brother, Jacob, who's kind of conniving opportunities in order to get what he needs or wants. It seems like a ridiculous scenario. right? Esau had a long day, and he just comes back hungry. Jacob says, give me your birthright first. He immediately jumps to that. It might have seemed like he was joking at first, but then he makes Esau swear on it. He really is driving home. This is what he means. He's holding Esau to it. Um, and it gives us this little note, right? Does Esau despise his
0: birthright?
2: It could have ended any number of ways. the little count. It could have said, so Jacob usurped his brother. Or even so Jacob obtained his brother's birthright. Those would have been accurate reporting of the facts here, but the message that scripture seems to single out from this incident is that Esau despised his birthright. To us, or at least to me, it might seem, it seems like a little trifling. Partly because if we talked about swearing an oath like that, few of us would take that seriously. Um, It was just a verbal agreement. One, when someone was clearly very hungry, were they really thinking in their right mind? Right. but the point here seems to be about the priority that Esau chose in that moment.
1: Esau was concerned with his hunger. What did he actually care about his birthright for some inheritance, in the future? If he wasn't going to live that long anyway, if he was going to die of hunger, he was
2: exaggerating at this moment, obviously, but he, that's his point. And this is an important note in the account because it provides for us a a layer of reasoning for why God will ultimately choose. Jacob as the inheritor of the promise, even though he is the younger. But it also reminds us of how important it is that we place our value on the right things. Makes me think of that parable that we shared earlier in the the video for the children's message. In Luke 14, Jesus tells this story about a man who threw a big party for himself, invited all his friends, but when time came around for that party, they all had excuses to not come. One said I just bought some property. I need to go check it out and take care of some things. Another said, I just bought a bunch of oxen. I need to make sure that they're oxy enough, right? And my favorite one is uh, the last one where this guy says, I just got married. Uh, Even Deacon, while we were sitting there, said, couldn't the wife come too? Like, what's the problem with that? Um, You imagine the the host saying, like, I mean, I invited you, like, months ago. Did you plan your wedding for, like, the same day? You could have told me then. There's any number of things. but The host ends up saying, "Oh, I just want somebody to come. He tells the servants to go out on the streets and invite any and everybody that they see to come in. The poor, the crippled, the blind, everybody. How many of us are missing out on the party of a lifetime with Jesus because we would rather run errands and attend to immediate interests? Or how many of us, like Esau, Forsake the gift of our inheritance in Christ because we think that something else will better attend to our immediate need. Almost none of us would think of it that way in the moment. It's usually much more subtle, sometimes even seasonal with events in life, seasons of life. We might say things like, yes, my community of faith is important, but also we want our kids to be involved in the sports that they love. So for this season, we're going to prioritize things like travel sports. Or, or yes, church is important, but so is rest. And Sunday is my only opportunity to sleep in. And these aren't sin- sinful decisions, right? They aren't sinful. Social involvement and physical exercise are good things. Rest is a good thing. Eating when we're hungry, like you wants to do, is a good thing. But we can underestimate the power of our choices when we prioritize one good thing or the most precious thing in relationship of God. And I do want to clarify here, I'm not trying to say that church attendance is somehow the cornerstone of our faith life, that it matters just that we prioritize that habit in our life. It's just an example of the choices and the priorities that we make in our faith lives. And if there's one thing that Jacob gets right here, even at this young stage, is that he recognizes the value of the birthright in his family, especially this family. Family of the promise, promise that God given to them. Esau had that just by virtue of being born seconds before his brother. But he doesn't seem to care that much about it. Jacob realizes how important it is. He understands the value. We have been offered the greatest gift of grace in Jesus. And through him, we've been chosen and adopted as co-heirs, as children in the kingdom of God and his inheritance.
1: Do we treasure that? Evidence? Will we trade it to satisfy our appetite in the moment?
2: So I, have a, I have suggested in this that we can, we can learn from this account to, to pray rather than the scheme. Be careful what we that we speak life over others, and to seek God's kingdom above temporary concerns. No one in Genesis seems to do that well especially not Abraham or Isaac or Rebecca or Jacob or Esau. None of them seem to do that perfectly. They all had faults. We look to them, though, as examples because we can relate to them. We can relate to the mistakes that they make, the choices they make. Their failures seem all too understandable and familiar. But as as is often the case, there's a world of difference between what not to do and what to do. What is just a shadow of the right thing? What is the right and the good and the beautiful in full? In the patriarch, we see a glimpse and a shadow of what is to come. And in Jesus, we see both. Jesus never schemed. He prayed constantly. He's constantly retreating into quiet uh, places in solitude, doing nothing without hearing from the Father first. And Jesus understood the impact of his words. He spoke with great care and authority, lifting up the lowly and humbling the proud. Jesus refused also to give in to temporary gain or to forfeit intimacy with the Father. Instead, he prioritizes intimacy and obedience. When he's tempted in the wilderness uh, to eat, uh, turn uh, the stones into bread or to receive all the kingdoms of the world from Satan, he he knows his role and his value. When agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane,
1: he nonetheless continued faithful ministry. Where all others failed, Jesus was faithful.
2: It's because of God's promise through Jacob that we know that God works with all of us in our
1: weakness. It's because of Jesus that we know that God saves us and makes us whole. in one. May we ever live our lives. Lord, we thank you for what we learn,
2: reflecting on the lives of your people and all who have come before.
1: We're thankful for the ways in which we see them point to you. Jesus, for what you have enabled us. That even though we are so often faithless, you're so
2: often distracted and turned around and get our priorities all out of whack, that you have shown us what it means to be reconciled to you and to value, seek your kingdom above all else. You've made a way, you've made it possible for us to be reconciled,
1: renewed, restored, whole in you. May we treasure. Yeah. Always. Say that.